probably will be in this chapter several weeks. I will tell you that as I was going into this chapter, I have paragraph breakdowns in my uh, version here of the ESV, this particular ESV Bible has paragraph breakdowns, and I didn't think we would be doing verses 1 through 13 together. Uh, I thought we would be doing 1 through 8, but just as the Lord led this week, um, it's the same theme, so we're going to combine it all into one message this morning. Uh, and you already see the title, so verse number 8 will be the key, though I'm not going to linger long in verse 8, it will be the key. All right, so let's begin here, all right? Uh, some of you were here last week, and I know some were not able to. So several of you, many of you no doubt online, were able to uh, hear last week's message. Uh, but if you were not, and all of us need to review either way, um, I'm not going to have the verses on the screen, but if you have your Bible open in front of you, notice where chapter 11 finished as Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and again, um, the reason I'm pointing this out is, is because chapter 12, verse 1, starts with three words, at that time, at that time. That doesn't mean, have to mean exactly at that very moment, though it can. It can also mean at that season, in that season. And so Matthew likes to take themes, but notice as Matthew puts themes together where he finishes off chapter 11 and how it flows into chapter 12. If you have your Bible open, you won't see it on the screen. Look at verse 28. This is where we left off last week. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. As I said last week, this is not an invitation for everyone to come to him. It's a, this invita invitation is specifically to this group of people who come to me, all, so it is universal in that sense, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. So his call is, come to me, all who meet these two conditions. They're heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? So a lot of people in the world do not feel the weight of their sin. They're not convicted about their sinfulness. They don't feel the burden. They don't feel the penalty hovering over them. Those that do feel that, I hope you've had a time in your life where you have felt that. When I was nine, I felt that extremely heavy. And that's when, what led to my salvation. Christ says to all who labor and are heavy laden. But notice the labor. Not only is the heavy burden our sinfulness and the burden of its penalty that is looming and condemning us, but there's also part of that heavy burden is the labor that our mind does this. When we feel condemnation, then we think, uh-oh, I'm going to stand before God one day. I need to do some religious actions to make up for my sins. And so we start laboring. We all have these set rules in our mind. The Jews of Jesus' day had their list. And that's going to, what's, that's going to be what ties us into chapter 12. You have yours. I have mine. It's typically what we're taught. Hey, if you'll do this, you'll go to heaven when you die. And it's usually these man-centered working our way to heaven. Jesus says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You cannot work your way to heaven. Come to me. That's the first thing. And then rest in his work on the cross that we just sung about. And then we pointed out last week a specific order. After our salvation, notice, come to Christ, rest in his work, not your work. And then he says, then take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Become my disciple. And then he says, rest again after that. So it's come to Christ, 
rest in him, there's our salvation. And then take, it's all, it happens together, take his yoke upon us, become his disciple. If you really do get saved, you will become his disciple. You will learn of him. You're going to start a new journey through life. Already saved, Why is, what is this new yoke? There is holiness to be lived and there is work to be done, but it is all done while resting in his power to do what we could never do before that time period. We tried, we failed, we're going to rest in your ability, your work on the cross, and now your Holy Spirit's going to give us the ability to live a more godly life and to do work that is actually for you. And so with this in mind, this laboring that people do, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give us an example of one thing, and he doesn't go into the details of it, but one of the things that the Jews of Jesus' day labored under. And it was the Mosaic law concerning the Sabbath day. So with that in the backdrop, look at verse number 1 of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. I'm assuming Jesus probably walked ahead. He's the leader. I don't know that. Did they fan out behind him? I don't know. Did they go single file, groups of two? Was somebody up taking turns walking beside it? Were they three wide? We don't know. Just really let the Bible get into it. Picture it. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So it's on Saturday. His disciples, so again, following Jesus, they're where they're supposed to be on Saturday. They were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. This tells us, without saying it, it was probably around the month of April. Because in the month of April, the grain heads are green. And they're full of protein and they have sugar in them. This is not later on, June, July, when those grain heads will be fully ripe and really dry. Because I read, you try to eat that, that could break your teeth. That's going to have to be cooked and ground down and made into a flour of some type. So that's not, so we're probably talking about April. So his disciples are hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, again, I, my mind just works a certain way. Are they behind Jesus and they're also headed in a certain direction and they just happen to notice? Or are they from a vantage point and they're spying and looking and looking for things to accuse him of? And we know that that is very often the case. So whether they just happen to see or were they watching, verse 2 again, when the Pharisees saw it, what the disciples did, they said to him, look. Y'all remember the old Monopoly guy? There's little cards and sometimes he's like this. I picture instead of hands like this, they're like this. Look. Look. Verse, verse 3. Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Hello. Are you going to let this go? What, do you not know they're doing it? Do you not care that they're Are you not going to? Look at this. Sorry, I put that image in your old Monopoly guy. Verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? So his disciples are hungry. They pluck some heads of grain. They eat it. Luke or Mark tells us, I may think it was Luke, says that they rubbed it in their hands. Obviously to get the husk off and no doubt let the wind blow those away, the chaff. And then what's left? They're eating Verse 4, verse 3, I'm sorry. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? Some of you remember already 
there in the book of 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 21. We're not going to go there. But you remember that he's fleeing from Saul, and he's hungry, and he goes up, and he's asking for some bread, and Jesus is referring to this. He ends up eating the bread that had been before the table, that had been on the table of showbread in the holy place. David and his men end up eating that. Verse 4, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus says, Did, have you, do you guys remember that, how David was hungry, he and his men are hungry. They end up eating the bread of the presence, the, the, the table of showbread, those 12 loaves. They end up taking those. And you remember the judgment of God that fell down on David for that? No, you don't remember that part because it isn't the Bible. There was no judgment of God poured out on him. And right now, I, I would love to see their faces, these Pharisees, as Jesus talks about that. But they could probably dismiss that in their minds. What's your point? Nothing says that was on the Sabbath day. It probably was. Verse 5. More to the point, Jesus asked the same question again. Or have you not read in the law? Now let's get real specific. You guys are caught up on the Sabbath law. Have you not read in the law? We're talking about the law of Moses, the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. Have you not read that? And now their minds are working. Had they already thought of that? Is this new information that they never really deciphered that and contemplated that and tried to reach some wisdom and discern? Who knows? But boy, he sure pulled it out and put it on them. And they have no answer to that. Verse 6 I tell you, and this is connected, it may sound disconnected as we read it. He says, so the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and yet they're guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the We, in other words, Christ is saying, we show lots of respect to that structure that is down in Jerusalem. As we, we honor that building, as they should, but he's telling them, do you not realize here in this grain field is something greater than the temple? And they're probably thinking, what is in this grain field that's greater than the You've lost your mind is probably what they're thinking. Verse 7, another Old Testament passage. Jesus says to his Pharisees, accusers of his disciples, if you had known what this means, if you knew what this means, and now for the second time in the book of Matthew, Jesus pulls a quote out of the Old Testament prophet Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus pulls this quote and says, If you knew what this means, quote, God says, I desire mercy. Grace, if you listen this morning. I, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus says, If you guys knew what that meant, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What did Jesus just call the disciples and what they did? He just said they're guiltless. If you guys understood Hosea 6 verse 6, you would not be condemning the guiltless, my disciples. And now if he was not specific and was too vague, he pulls the gloves off, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And now we'll continue on to the next scene. He went on from there, round one to Jesus, verse nine. He went on from there 
and entered their synagogue, probably Capernaum, we don't know for sure. And a man was there with a withered hand. He apparently has a withered, withdrawn, shrunken hand and forearm. Potentially the wording seems to be that. Like, and we know that it was his right hand, according to Luke, I believe it was. So Jesus goes on from there, he enters their synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal? On the, we know what you said out in the grain field. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, they really don't want an answer. They don't want to learn from Jesus. Because the next phrase says, they asked this so that they might accuse him. Is it lawful to heal? Okay, we know what you believe down there. Apparently, you've excused what your disciples. Do you think it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath day so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, and it could be just as simple as has a sheep, or it could be a sheep. Some translations literally say has one sheep. So let this sink in. Jesus questioned to these Pharisees, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? A sheep has a one in seven chance of falling into a pit. If it's going to fall in a pit, it has a one in seven chance that it happens on a Sabbath. If your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, which one of you will not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, that would be breaking their Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls... Cut off from water, cut off from food. It might be injured. It might be in a bind. It might be a position where it can't breathe. It's down there terrorized. It may be working itself more into a fix. Which one of you is not going to get down there and take hold of it and lift it out? Verse 12. Of how much more value is a man, as I believe he's probably pointing to the man with the withered hand, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So, it is, so here's kind of a summary. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then, he said to the man, four words. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out, and the man stretched out his hand, stretched it out, and it was restored Healthy like the other. And so that's our text this morning. Would you notice number one? We're going to look at three things. Number one, the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples. The Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples, verses 1 and 2. So they're walking through the grain fields. They pluck some heads of grain. And the Pharisees see it. And, hey, are you not going to do something about this? Can you not see that they're breaking the Sabbath laws? Would you notice with me their charge was not, hey, 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 you guys are stealing. Now, in America, we would consider that probably stealing if someone wanted to really get ticky-tack. Someone has a vineyard or apple trees or grain fields, and you take it in our country, you're not allowed to do that. But it's not stealing. That is not the charge. The Old Testament, God's law allowed the Jews, when they were going through each other's land, if you're hungry and you want to eat grain or you want to eat some grapes or you want to eat some other fruit, you can eat till you're satisfied. Now, you can't get your shirt or your robe and start loading it up and take it off. That is stealing, but you can eat till you're satisfied. In fact, you were not to reap all of your harvest. Leave some on the edges for just such occasions. So their charge is not, your guys are stealing. There's no problem with exactly what they're doing. The problem is when they're doing it. That's the problem. If they do this any other day, we're fine, but they're doing it today and you ought to be seeing it and do something about it, is their, their claim. So without going back and looking at Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments there, notice what R.C. Sproul, I think it's on your handout, 
He writes the following, so we need to lay a couple of things as a foundation. This is interesting. And notice the difference. Please catch what we're about to say. There's, you need it in your mind, and I will not always do a good job this morning of differentiating between God's laws and man's laws. So I'm relying on the Holy Spirit that when I forget to make that distinction, he will help you to know which one is which because Sproul writes the following, and this is true. Listen verse. Despite God's emphasis on the Sabbath, God did emphasize the Sabbath. There's no doubt about it. But he writes, despite God's emphasis on the Sabbath, the Old Testament contains very few specific rules and regulations regarding behavior on that day. It's a big deal. There's just not specific rules. There's a few, like maybe five or six. Can't do that, can't do that, can't do these other few. You cannot go out and, and collect manna for those 40 years. You can't build a fire. You can't do other certain things. But there's not like lots of rules and regulations listed in the law of God. He just says, hey, God created on six days. He rested on the seventh. You need to do your work, the work that you do, your work, what you do for a living. You need to do that on six days and then rest on the seventh. And God doesn't give a lot of breakdown. Sproul continues. And here's the problem. Because of this, the Jewish... There's the distinction, the other set. The Jewish religious authorities established all kinds of regulations for the Sabbath. God doesn't give a lot. He said, hey, don't work. A few other few things. They come up with many rules and regulations because apparently God needs help in deciphering this out. He continues and concludes this quote by saying, it was, listen, it was these man-made rules that Jesus' disciples violated when they plucked heads of grain. By the way, these rules grew through the centuries. I mean, grew for 1,500 years. Rule, I mean, just got bigger and bigger and bigger. In other words, God has a few things, and they ended up with 39 activities. But it's not just as simple as 39 activities. There's all sets of situations that come out of that. So in their world, And again, I'm not saying this is what the disciples did. They probably did reach over and probably did do that. But if you're walking in a grain field and the grain is this high and your hands are down and it's just grain is hitting your hand and it's bending over as you do, literally the simple act of just closing your hand. There it is, just closing. Whoa, look look what happened there. Lo and behold. And you keep walking. Look what happened and now something's in my hand. And then you get it. Just That's all you do. You close your hand. And you rub it together, and you open it up, and there's a little breeze, and there goes the shaft, and you have now broken the law. You have harvested, and threshed, and sifted, and winnowed, and now you have broken the law of God. So they say. This was a big deal to them. But this was their laws. Write this down, the Talmud, which is like the the most important collection of the Jewish traditional teachings. The Talmud, guys, let this sink in. No less than 24 chapters of details breaking down Sabbath rules. God gives just a few, here's a rule, don't work on the Sabbath, and he gives a few things. They end up having 24 chapters. Guys, it got so bad, you could not take a bath on the Sabbath day. Why? Because if the water spills over from where you're taking a bath, it may fall on the floor and actually clean the floor and end up washing it, and that would count as work. Can't do that. You can't pick up anything more than a dried fig. If it weighs more than a dried fig, you're like, well, where is it? It's, it's not in here. It's in their 24 chapters. I mean, we could go on. Guys, it got so bad. They could not defend themselves in war. 
200 years before this, Alexander the Great had died. He had handed over his empire, the Greek empire that had conquered Palestine. He hands over to four of his generals. One of them is over the land of Palestine. And his people are at combat with the Jews of that time. There were a thousand Jews hiding in a cave. And it was on the Sabbath. And they're not allowed to fight or do anything on the Sabbath. And they realize that here comes the enemy. They could not, realizing they're going to be discovered, they could not even get up and block off and camouflage the front of the cave because that would be working and lifting. So they sat in there literally knowing they're going to die. And sure enough, 1,000 men, women and children of the Jews were killed because they couldn't defend themselves because it was on the Sabbath day. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of these other generals, I'm going to figure that out, and that's the day I'm always going to attack. A hundred years later, apparently they made some corrections and allowances where now they could. So now we're at 63 B.C., just about a hundred years before this instead of 200. They finally hit a point where I guess you could defend yourself if it's a direct attack. The problem was Pompey. Maybe you've heard of him. He's laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And he's pretty smart and he's pretty wise and he realizes what the Jews will not do on the Sabbath day. And so he builds his ramp to be able to launch things over the walls of Jerusalem. He builds it on Saturday and they can't do anything to stop it. You say, well, that's war. I thought they'd made some adjustments. Right, if they were being attacked on Saturday, they could defend themselves. But if you're just over there building something from which to attack us, we can't meddle in your business. And so they literally had to stand and watch the ramp be built by which they were going to be defeated. They were serious. Number two, would you notice with me, Jesus defends his disciples, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning, verses three through eight. Jesus defends his disciples. Look at verse three and five. He said to them, have you not read? Look again at verse five, or have you not read? Guys, be careful. It's rampant in our day in different forms. But we get judgmental of each other and we start attacking each other and we get legalistic. The Pharisees were being judgmental toward the Lord's disciples and notice what he does. They're basing their judgmentalism off of man's rules, their rules, man-made rules. And Jesus does the right thing and he says, let's talk about what the scripture says. So you have a Sabbath law that God has given, but from that you've made all these other things and that's where you're launching your attack against my guys. Here's an age-old rule. Interpret the Scripture by Scripture. If you're wondering what's allowed, what's not allowed, go to the Word of God. And so he twice asked this question. It's very important. Have you not read? I know the answer to this question. They had read. They had read this. They would have heard this. They maybe they didn't have a copy of a Bible in their day like you do. It was very rare, but down at the synagogue, they would have had one. These guys would have taken school and classes, had exposure. So they would have been able to read these three passages that Jesus is going to refer to. They've read them, but here's the problem. I'm going to take a, a little 30-second side, side path. They hadn't read thoughtfully. If someone would ask me, Jeff, could you give like a 30-second or a one-minute crash course on how to study the Bible? I want to learn how to study the Bible. If I were to give you just a crash course and you just say, I'm going to go home and literally do this, I would tell a person, when you read the Bible, you say, I want to do more than just read it through and check it off the list, I would say, read it slowly. Read it very slowly. Read it thoughtfully. Read it in context. I'm going to give you like four or five things that I would tell a person. Read it very slowly. Read it very, very thoughtfully. 
putting in its context. That's why we like expositional preaching here for our Sunday mornings. Like, we're going to build. That's why I took the time to talk about verses 28 to 30 in the previous chapter. We're going to build on what's been said before. How does it all connect? Read slowly, read thoughtfully, keeping it in it. Here's one. Read it repeatedly. Don't just read like one time. Back I promise you guys, you will get more out of the Word of God if you will read 10 or 15 verses three or four times or five times slowly, literally 10, 15 verses, four or five times slowly, then you will get conquering three or four chapters, reading through it in 25 minutes. There, Spend the same 25 minutes reading those 10 to 15 verses slowly, thoughtfully, repeatedly. And here's the key to the whole thing. Read it prayerfully. Like literally take this step. God, I'm going to read your word. I'm going to read it over and over and over a few times. I'm going to, I want you to show me what this means. They've read this, but they've never stopped and thought, Lord, show us what you're trying to teach us about yourself in these passages. And so Jesus says, have you not read? Look at verse 3. Watch verse 3. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So David's on the run from Saul. David's been anointed as the king, God's choice of king. King Saul, the people's choice, has already disobeyed God. He's on the out, but he's still recognized, waiting on him to die. God's going to take care of that. But in the meantime, Saul is jealous of David. He's getting ready to attack David. David has to flee and run. He doesn't have food. He and his men are hungry. The Bible doesn't say in 1 Samuel if it was a Sabbath, but guys, listen, it probably was because as he comes to where the the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was at that time, he comes to the high priest and says, hey, uh, we need some food. And the high priest wants to help, and he says, only one problem, I don't have any bread. We have no bread made. The only bread we have is this bread that had been on the table of showbread. Watch. In the tabernacle, this is pre-temple, the same thing was laid out in the temple. Here's the order. If I was heading into the tabernacle. I have a courtyard, and then I'm going to have a basin of water where we cleanse and wash, and then we're going to have an altar where the sacrifices are burned. Then you're going to go into a curtain. You're going to have a candlestick. You're going to have a table of incense that's going to put out the smell right in front of the main, main curtain. So we've entered the first curtain. We're in the holy place. So the candlestick, and there's a an altar of incense, and then there's this table of showbread, and it has 12 loaves of bread on it, and then behind that other curtain, only one person goes in there once a year. That's the Ark of the Covenant where the very presence of God dwelt. This is an offering to God. These 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel, they're only meant as an offering to God, changed out every Saturday, and here the high priest says, all I have is this bread. But it's for God. And then when we remove that and put fresh bread, only the priest can eat it. But you can have David and his men ate what was only for the priests and wasn't judged. And they're probably wondering here in chapter 12, what's the point? Can I offer that this is the point of verses 3 and 4? Listen. It's not on your handout. Listen. That teaches us there can be exceptions to ritual laws. You need to note that. There can be exceptions to ritual laws. Verse 5, more to the point, because we're talking about the Sabbath. Have you not read in the law? Now, this is a tremendous point Jesus makes. They're attacking on Sabbath, what they think are Sabbath laws. Have you not read in the law? You guys are all about the law. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
Uh, this will be on the screen. I'm going to flip back very quickly. Deuteron- uh, not Deuteronomy. Numbers chapter... Wait a minute. Let me get it. Wait a minute. I'll move my marker. Numbers 28. There we are. Look at verses 9 and 10. Watch this. We're just going to touch it. I'm not going to really preach on this. This has to do with what Jesus is talking about in verse 5. Numbers chapter 28. Look at verse 9. God's laws. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, be two, there'll be males, lambs, a year old, two male lambs, year old, have to be without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. Watch verse 10. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering that was described before that. So this is done, two male lambs and this flour and this oil and this drink offering are all extra additional, we could say, verse 10. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. What is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 12? He's asking this. All right, guys, why are they allowed to do that on the Sabbath day? Why are they allowed to do this? William Barclay writes the following. Catch it. To light a fire, that was one of the things you couldn't do in God's Word. The Word of God, the the, the Old Testament law said you can't build a fire, can't go collect manna, a few other things. Barclay writes, to light a fire, to slaughter an animal, to lift it up onto the altar would have been to break the law and hence to profane the Sabbath. But for the priest, it's perfectly legal to do these things. And we would ask ourselves, and they would probably ask, why are they allowed to do this? Here's what he concludes, and I think rightfully so. The reason they're able to do this, quote, the, hear it, the temple worship must go on. And then he concludes, that is to say, let this sink in, worship offered to God took precedence of all the Sabbath rules. Worship offered at the temple has to go on. And so I'm thinking here. We're thinking of the Ten Commandments. Are there commandments that have built-in, God-sanctioned exceptions in them? Think with me. First commandment, no other gods. Is there ever a time we're allowed to have other gods? No. Is there a time we're ever allowed to make graven images and worship and serve those images? No. Is there ever a time it's okay to... Take God's name in vain. Hey, don't take my name in vain unless you really, really have to. If you want to make the guys on the job really, really scared and show them that you're really, really mad, then you, no, you can't. I'll find you guilty. You'll not be held guiltless. Don't ever take my name in vain. And then we come to the Sabbath. Are there exceptions? Jesus is showing there are exceptions. The next one, what about honoring parents? Is there ever a time? Listen, if your parents tell you, take the Lord's name in vain, or murder that person, or commit adultery, or go steal some stuff. You need to disobey your parents, even if it looks dishonoring to them, that would be an exception. I can't obey you, and by obeying you, disobey other parts of the Word of God. I have to passively disobey you, even if it looks like I'm dishonoring you. So maybe there's some exception. Don't kill. Are there exceptions to not killing? Self-defense, war, capital punishment. So there are exceptions. 
Don't bear false witness. Is there ever a time to lie? Well, the Bible doesn't outright sanction this, but I'm thinking of the Hebrew, mid, Hebrew midwives who told lies, and they weren't judged for it. They're actually cast in a good light. I'm thinking of Rahab, who knows full well where the two Hebrew spies are on her roof hiding, but here come the people of Jericho want to find them and kill them, and she lies. Why? To save human life, she lies. We're told not to covet Told not to covet. And yet the New Testament says, if you can find a situation where the word of God and the truth of God is being proclaimed, covet that you would be able to proclaim the word of God. Well, I want that, Lord. I want to be able. So there are exceptions. You're in Matthew 12. Perhaps after verse 3 and 4, hey, what about David? I wonder if their thought would have been, hey, wait, 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 wait. That's David. Your guys aren't David. To which, on this side, 2,000 years later, we may would say, eh, be careful. You don't know how important these guys are. They're, they're big deals. After verse 5, though, talking about the priests continue to do their work, I wonder if the thought wasn't this. Watch. I think in the Pharisees' minds, though they don't answer out loud, I think they may have thought this. Okay. But that's the temple. And they're the priests. They have to keep the sacrifice. Those are obvious exceptions to which I think Jesus' point in verse 6 is that so we agree there are exceptions to the Sabbath. We're agree you have to agree with that. You have to acknowledge they're allowed to do that. And David broke some, some ritual laws out of necessity. Verse 6, would you look at it just for a moment? Following that, Admission that they would have to give in their mind. Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So I think what's happening, verse 6 and then verse 7, where Jesus is going to talk about, if you had known what this means, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent or the guiltless. I think what's happening here in verse number 6 and 7 is that Jesus is making a point. So I want to be very, very careful here. Listen, ritual is important. Sacrifices are important. You ought to make sacrifices. I ought to make sacrifices in my Christian life. Watch again. Come to Christ. Rest in Christ. But then after salvation, take his yoke upon and still be resting even as I'm learning of the Lord and, and letting him live a holy life through me and him accomplishing the work of the Lord, true work of the Lord now that I'm saved. So yes, there is ritual. There is Sabbath day ritual. There are sacrifices to be made. But if you're taking notes, Sproul writes the following. Jesus' point in verse 6 and 7 is mercy was more important than ritual. Yes, ritual matters. The Sabbath is important and the sacrifices are important. But some things are more important than those ritual things. Even more important than sacrifices and Sabbath. Verse 6. One more time at verse 6. Yeah, but that's, that's the temple and their priests. They, they have to. Verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't appreciate what I'm about to say. But in the land of Israel, the temple 
was the center of worship. It was the center of their identity. It was the center of life. To them, it was the most, it's what set them apart as the people of God. We have the presence of God among us, and we have this temple, and we have this law of God, and we have this circumcision. All these things are in. This is all tied together. The temple is the key in their world. And here Jesus says something greater. I have to ask you, what is this something greater than the temple? What that's important. He says something greater. How many of you think you know what it is? Seriously? It is Jesus. Jesus is the something greater. You're like, how could Jesus be great? Watch. The temple was the symbolic presence of God. The temple on earth never housed God. God's far too big for the temple. The planet earth and the solar system in the universe is way too small to house God, much less a little bitty building in the city of Jerusalem. It can't, so it's symbolically the presence of God. Jesus is greater than the symbolic house of God because Jesus is God himself. Jesus is saying, I am here in this grain field. I'm more important than the temple that is down in the city of Jerusalem. So he's making a ranking. It is very clear once we look at it that way, but if we don't look we're wondering, what's Jesus' point in verse 5 and 6? So they acknowledge about, yes, the priests are exceptions to the Sabbath rules. One more quote, I think, is my last one. I think this is the fourth and last one that I'll pull from outside this morning. Carson writes the following to tie it all together. Carson writes that Jesus gave, quote, so I know you're writing, but try to listen to this. Jesus gave an instance from the law itself in which the Sabbath restrictions, that's what they're wanting to hold. He gave an example from the law itself in which the Sabbath restrictions were superseded by the temple, as it were, or superseded because their responsibilities, the priest's responsibilities, took precedent. Here's why. Here's the main part of the quote. The temple, as it were, was greater than the Sabbath. And they would have to agree with that. But now Jesus claims something greater than the temple is here. We know that he is that something greater. And Carson concludes, and that too took precedence over the Sabbath. Watch. Here's Jesus' point, verse 6 and 7. You have the Sabbath laws, but the temple outranks the Sabbath. But in verse 6, Jesus is greater than the temple. So if Jesus is greater than the temple, Jesus is greater than the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws. And oh, by the way, you say, what's down below that? They're man-made rules. So Jesus is Lord of the temple, he's Lord over the Sabbath, and he's surely Lord over their little flimsy man-made additions to the law of God. Notice verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So this is a very important passage, second time we've looked at it, and we'll look at it a little further this morning. Watch this. The way this is used is used it's saying that A is more important than B. Guys, look at, look at, look at with your eyes, verse 7. If you had known what this means, quote, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I de- if you knew what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This does not mean, please don't read that and say, well, God apparently desires mercy and he doesn't want any more sacrifice. God hates their sacrifices. That's not what it's saying. 
This is not saying that sacrifices are wrong and sinful and I want them stopped. What it is saying is that sacrifices are secondary in rank. They rank behind mercy. Can I word it this way? This is important. Sacrifices rank behind mercy and sacrifices are only useful in light of mercy. I need to say, boy, you need to go home and and think on that because I think you're writing it down. Sacrifices are only useful in light of mercy. Hey, why do you do that and that and that for the Lord? Because he's merciful. We don't do this to earn a relationship with God. We do this because God is merciful and has given a relationship with him. And that's why we would offer sacrifices. Very, very quickly, I'm going to ask you a question. What is, in your mind, I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but I hope you'll formulate literally a real answer. What is the primary difference between sacrifices and mercy? Now think. If you're taking a test, you're going to write down the primary, in this context, hundreds of years before Christ, in that context, what's the primary difference? Here's sacrifices and here's mercy. What is the main difference between the two? The main difference, could we agree, is Who's giving them? Did you guys come up with that in your head? That's where my mind went. What's the difference? The difference is who's giving. Sacrifices, we're giving sacrifices. Mercy is given by God. That's key. Here's what God has made a determination. Here's the point of verse 7 of Hosea 6, 6. Guys, listen. In the Old Testament, it's as though the gospel in a seed form precedes the New Testament. It is given. Literally, you wouldn't even have to know full well what the New Testament is teaching if you could get what Hosea 6, 6 says. God's message is no relationship with God will be based off of sacrifices. You doing for me. No relationship will be based, based on that. All relationship with God will always be based on mercy. I desire mercy. It doesn't mean never to have sacrifices. It means, Israel, you've got to the point where you do your sacrifices, but your heart isn't in it, and you're not doing it because of my mercy. You're just doing it as a way to earn my favors. I'm telling you, Israel, and anyone else, grace for you. You can never earn a relationship with me. You will never earn my favor. It will always, I've made a rule, it will always be by my mercy. Always. One more thought from verse 7. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you knew that, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Can I make a quick application to us? When a religious observance by us, whatever it may be, I got baptized. I read my Bible. I give to the Lord. I pray. I have a routine of these things. I've put certain things out of my life. I take the Lord's Supper. I give. Listen carefully. Jesus says of the Father that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Again, I don't ever want you to say it means it ranks behind. When a religious observance by us results in a feeling of being better than others and condemning them, like the Pharisees did, mark it down, we've missed the whole point of the religious observance. When its result is, I feel like I'm up here now. Guys, even if it's subtle, when you do some version of some religious observance, you do it, and if it leaves you thinking, even subtly, I think I've moved up a notch. I'm kind of up here now, and they're down. And you start condemning other people. 
Let me make it applicable. Our being here this morning with Bibles in our laps doesn't make us inherently better than the person at home this morning with a severe hangover or the one who's in jail because they should be in jail because they've broken the law. It doesn't mean we are inherently better than them. It just means we've received abundant mercy and grace. It is only by God's mercy and grace that I'm not at home with a hangover this morning, that I'm not in jail, that I'm not in hell right now. It doesn't mean we're better. It just means we've received mercy and grace. I do want you to write this next thought down. And this is where we need to check ourselves. Based off verse 7 in Hosea 6, verse 6, those who are quick to condemn other people are usually much more focused on what they do for God than what God does for them. And that's what gives us the freedom to be so condemning and arrogant. Mark, has there ever been a time in your life, and many of us would have to say, oh yes, that's been me, where we're quick to condemn and quick to put down and talk about that and put that person, even if we don't say it, we're thinking in our heart. When we're in that way of thinking, it's probably a sign that we're really focusing on all the things that we're doing for God, all the sacrifices that we're making, instead of focusing on all the things that God is doing for us, and that's why the Pharisees were condemning the innocent disciples. A couple more thoughts, and then we'll hit our last point this morning. Guys, the Pharisees were so far from God I might be wrong on this point, but I think from reading, this is my perspective. This is what I've gleaned by reading the Gospels. These guys are so far from actually knowing God that it appears to me they are promoting, they constantly promote the idea that the Sabbath is, watch, the key law. Of the ten. It's like the. Now, if you were to ask them, they would say, oh, yes, this is over here. But in their actions and the way they think, it seems like this is the key. But it's not the key law. Jeff, you don't think it's the first? No. You don't think it's the second? No. Well, where would you rank it in the ten? Yeah. My opinion, it's number ten. And they're making it number one. They don't know God. The number one law of God is that we love him and love each other. These people are showing they have no love for God and they have no love for people. They're just condemning everyone else for not living up to their personal standards. Here's the problem. They viewed the Sabbath laws of God as given by God to like restrict people and to test mankind and to hold him down. It got so bad that they, this is the problem. These guys, through the centuries, kept adding 24 chapters in their book, 24 chapters of rules and detailed explanations. Like you can't go but so far of a distance from your house, but they had little cheats. If you run a rope from your house to another structure, then that structure is kind of an extension of your house. So you don't have to count these in your 3,000 steps. What? Yeah, they, they had little loopholes. But those got to go in the books. And they just keep building more and more and more. They've turned this thing into such a situation, it became literally a burden on people. The Sabbath day was a dread. It's not something that people look for. Hey, the Sabbath's coming. We'll get a day off. No, the Sabbath's coming. Oh, no. Is everything said? Because if we break, I'm going to walk around with a bruised conscience. Oh, no, I think I started my, I think I finished my bath. Just, I mean, I'm pretty sure I dripped some water. Oh, no. Oh, this is terrible. 
Stop it. Can we agree on this? Jesus doesn't say things just to hear himself talk. He says things for a reason. Notice, it'll be on screen, Mark chapter 2. Watch verse 27. It's the same scene. This is Mark's situation. Mark is giving his version of this account. Jesus doesn't waste words. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, watch, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Chew on that. Hey, hey, guys, you know what y'all need to understand? The Sabbath was made for man. Guys, this is not what happened. God wasn't thinking in eternity past. You know, I've got this Sabbath thing. I'm pretty sure this is one of my best inventions ever. If I only had someone to observe it. It's a great, the Sabbath, it's such a great law. I'm going to make this creation. We'll call them man. And they can do my, that'll work. Guys, that is so not what happened. God is not sitting around. Here's what happened. God made man, and knowing the way that we're built and wired, God says, they need rest. And see so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them rest. The Pharisees had made it a dread and a burden. God literally gave the Sabbath as a gift to benefit us. Here's a present for you, mankind. Take a day off and rest. Just literally rest from your labors. What a gift. But they had twist. Here's what that tells me. Jeff, when you teach and preach God's laws in such a way that people feel them as a dread and a burden instead of a benefit, you're teaching it and preaching it the wrong way. If you're trying to observe a demand of Christ or a law of God and you're like, it's just not benefiting me, it's because you're going about it all the wrong God gives his laws to help us and benefit us. And with that in mind, verse 8. I told you I'm only touching on it because it's the theme of the whole thing. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 11, verse 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then he says, all things have been handed over to me. And now he makes it real clear. If they miss the veiled Truth that Jesus gives in verse 6, hey, something greater than the temples out here in this grain field. Well, what could that be? Okay, dummies, let me just tell you straight up. I'm the Lord of the harvest. Remember what Lord means? Absolute master. I call the shots. So here's what I'm learning from this text. Jesus can do with the Sabbath whatever he wants to do. And so whatever Jesus' approach to the Sabbath is, that's the most authoritative thing in all of the Scripture. And what His Holy Spirit shows people to write about the Sabbath, and that even outranks what we think we know from the Old Testament, what Jesus says, because He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can do with it what He wants. Pay attention to what He does. He makes the rules. Number three this morning, our last thought, comes out of verses 13 to 19. We'll not be here long. But it's this, not only do they attack his disciples and Jesus defends his disciples, Jesus exercises his authority as Lord. He actually exercises his authority as Lord. Look at verse 9. So he went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. I don't know if the man literally just happened to be there. He, he heard, you know, maybe that Jesus, this is where his headquarters is. He finally gets there. He wants this healing done. Did they bring him and plant him in the room? We don't really know. We know it was his right hand. We know he has a withered hand, a forearm, verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because they want to accuse him. 
we'll read in a moment, Jesus ends up asking them. And I think here's the order, because Matthew doesn't say everything. Jesus shows them asking, Je- them asking Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew shows them asking Jesus a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In a moment, we're going to see Mark shows Jesus asks questions of them. Here's the first one. Is it lawful to heal? So in a moment, I'll have you write this down. Let's put it in our head first. Hear it first. In most of their Jewish teaching, I have to say most because they conflict with each other. Sometimes this rabbi says this is allowed, and another one says no, it's not, and they go back and forth. In most Jewish law, hear it first, write it second, you were allowed to take life-saving measures. You can do that. Secondly, you can take steps to keep someone from getting worse. What if someone like really gets injured and it happens to happen on a Saturday? Okay. You can save their life. Most would let you do that. And sometimes, sorry, you're out of luck. We can't help you. That would require me bending over, lifting, and help. I can't do it. You just have to die. But mostly, okay, you can save their life. Number two, you can keep them from getting worse. But number three, you couldn't heal them. Couldn't heal them. Most Jews agreed on those things. You can keep them from getting worse. So if you're struggling, okay, Jeff, what does that actually mean? All right, you get a gash, a big cut. They could put a bandage on it. No medicine. Hang in there, buddy. When the sun goes down, we're going to put some medicine on that bandage. For now, we've just got to keep it from getting worse. We can't actually help you. So we can't do that. That's their rules. Guys, look at verse 10. There was a man with a withered hand. What's the problem in their mind? What's the problem in their mind? You can save a life, keep somebody from getting worse, but you can't heal them. They're wanting to know, hey, are you allowed to heal on the Sabbath? In their mind, you're with me, right? You're tracking This is not a life or death situation. This is a withered hand. The man's already had it for a while. It'll be the same way tonight. And if you want to do something, you can do it then. That's the way they're thinking. Now, leave your marker there. Go with me. I said we would go here. Mark chapter 3. Flip over there. It's just the next book over. Mark chapter 3. Because Mark's going to include something that Matthew did not, and it's pretty important. We'll hit this, draw some conclusions. From verse 12, and then I'll finish with some broader perspective before we pray. And this morning, obviously, is not a, like, heavy, heavy invitation time. This is a very teaching time this morning. That's where the Lord has taken us. It's in His will. We're going through the book of Matthew. Look at Mark chapter 3. This is His version of this same incident. Watch verse 4. By the way, if you have your Bible open, you see verse 3, because here's what's happening. Here's the order, I think. Watch. They know this man's in the room. Jesus is teaching, by the way, according to Luke. I don't know that he always did that. This day, he's teaching. There's a man with a withered hand. Jesus knows it. The Pharisees know it. And the Pharisees know that Jesus knows it. What's he going to do? They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Go ahead, say your answer and incriminate yourself because you're probably going to go against the teachings of the Jews. Verse number three, Jesus, I think... Let's just take this thing head on. He, I don't know which side of the room the man sat on, but I imagine, sir, won't you just come on up? And with his left hand, come on up. Won't you just stand right there? These guys want to know, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Won't you just stand right there? Verse 4. Matthew 3, verse 4. He said to them, is it lawful? Get this. Hear Jesus. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm. Can I do baby voice? Like you're talking to a child. 
a 10-year-old could answer these questions. Fellas, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Option one, do good or do harm? Can you heal on the Sabbath? All right, before I answer that question, let me answer that with a question. I want you guys to answer this. A or B, one or two, to do good on the Sabbath, to do harm on the Sabbath. He asked it another way. To save a life, ding, ding, hint, hint, hint. Save a life or to kill. Which one of those? Ten-year-old can answer this. But they were silent. Don't answer. I'm not. It's a trap. I'm not going to answer that. He wants us to incriminate ourselves. We asked our question to make you incriminate yourself. We're not going to answer. Guys, seriously, you can't answer to do good or to do harm. To, to save a life or to kill. You can't answer that. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their heart. He is ticked off at these guys. You won't even answer a simple question. This isn't a hard question. Verse number 5. Do you see? He's mad. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Put that back with what we learn over in Matthew. I think the Lord, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I got a question. Come on up. Why not you stand right here? To do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? They won't answer. And then Jesus says, all right, guys, I got a question for you. You have a sheep. It falls into a pit. Will you not? Of course you will. If you have a heart, you will lift that sheep out. Here's this point. That's an animal. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. God loves animals. God loves the animals. But God puts his love of the animals and the value of animals well below people. What the Lord is saying, how dare you? You know you would get your sheep out of the pit. This is a human being. This isn't a hard question. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. See what just happened? The Lord having proven from the law, the priest on the Sabbath, having proven from the prophets, David in the book of 1 Samuel, having proven from an act of everyday life, having proven from the prophets of Hosea, and then having proven from his very person. Here's what's happening. I don't need your approval. I don't need your permission. Yes, I can wait a few hours, and it'll not be a big deal in this man's life. But you know what I'm going to do? I am, this is just Jesus. You may say, isn't that kind of antagonistic? Jesus intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath, knowing he could wait till later, all because he wants to put their traditions in its rightful place under him as the Lord. Stretch out your hand. And I'm not going to preach on the healing because we've talked a lot about Jesus' healings, chapters 8 and 9. My only question is, what goes through their mind when this man stretches out his hand and it looked a certain way and all of a sudden it looks just as good as the other? They're so caught up, and we'll have to preach on this the next time, verse 14 and following. They want to kill Jesus because literally watching this miracle take place riles them up so much, they just want to kill Jesus. They can't get past the fact that he just healed someone on the Sabbath instead of celebrating this miraculous power of the God-man. Instead of, if I were there, I'd just say, you guys are really, you look, Matt, you're not happy for the man. You should really be. Did you just see? Uh, he did it. Oh, oh. Deal with this. Deal with, deal with what you just saw. This is a miracle. Deal with it. What do you have to say? He did it on the Sabbath. Get out of here. Get out of here, guys. 
And then they're going to attribute Jesus' power to demonic forces. I think if I were there, I would ask them this. So are you telling me four words from Jesus qualifies as a disqualifying work to you? Four words. That's all he did. Stretch out your hand. And it happens. So verse 12. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Let's write these thoughts down very quickly. As Lord of the Sabbath, verse 8, Jesus gave several principles about the Sabbath. And Grace View is wondering this morning, Jeff, what does this have to do with us? Hello, where do we stand? I'll close with that in just a moment. But as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus gave several principles. Number one, if you're writing them down, let's go quickly. Work of necessity, work of love, and work of mercy can be done every day. Work of necessity, it was very clear, David had to break a ritual law. It was necessary. He was very hungry, he and his men. God didn't judge them. Work of love and work of mercy. So what that tells me right off the bat, and they would allow, remember, a level of this, if someone's in the medical field, apparently they were allowed to do certain things on the Sabbath day. These could be done every day. Also, their synagogue teachers were allowed to teach on the Sabbath. And, of course, the priests offered sacrifice. So work of necessity, work of love, work of mercy. Those could be allowed. Number two, write this down. If an action, it's based on verse 12. If an action is good, so that's one level. Let's go bigger than that. If, this is broad, this is positive, this is very broad-ended. If an action is good, it's lawful to do on the Sabbath. Hey, am I allowed to do that on Sabbath? Is it good? then you can do it on the Sabbath. A lesson I took away from that is it's, it's always right to do right. When's it bad to do right? It's never wrong to do right. It's always right to do right. It doesn't mean you have to always be doing right. I know I sound like people are like, Jeff, you've said a lot. It's 12.03, man. What did you just say? You don't always have to be doing right because you literally never sleep. Because if you went around thinking, I have to always be doing something right. I I can't sleep. I'm just going to have to just do right until I die. No, you can go to sleep. But if you choose not to rest because you're doing something good and doing right, well, then it's always right to do right. You can do that. But the biggest, most weightier ones that are takeaway from this chapter is the following. That's two into one. Please remember this. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell the Jews. The Sabbath was given to help us, not to cause dread. Oh, no. Saturday's coming. Oh, can't wait to get to go back to work. I'm so scared of Saturday. No, Saturday's given to help us. It's a gift. It's not to cause dread. But the really main thing of the Sabbath is the last part of that bullet point. The Sabbath guys actually looked ahead, according to the book of Hebrews, to our resting in Christ. Our physical rest on the seventh day of the week, as the Lord gave it in the Old Testament, that was always pointing through our spiritual rest in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. I am completely at rest. I know where I'm going to go when I die. I am not stressed about that, guys. That's not me bragging on me. I'm just talking about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I today am resting in that now, and I will be resting in that for all of eternity. The Sabbath was always pointing toward the rest of the people of God in the work of the Son of God. It always pointed to that. So what about us? I have three more thoughts. I have five. Three will be on your handout. 
Ready? Let's wrap this all up this morning. And you say, well, I didn't really come to hear a lot about the Sabbath. I've got my own views, okay? Let's not let the Scripture interrupt our views. We don't want to do that. Number one's not on your handout. Would you notice this, though? I challenge you to kind of read it. Jesus never obliterated the Sabbath. He never obliterated the Sabbath. Yet, listen, he frequently corrected wrong views and challenged misguided expectations. So he never came along and said, "Ah, Sabbath, it's over, it's done. He didn't do that. The next two, though, come along with that. I challenge you to read the New Testament for this. It is extremely interesting, and I think very important. Please catch this. Out of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the only one of the ten that is not specifically reiterated in the New Testament. You say, is it not talked about? Jeff, it's talked about. It's not specifically reiterated in the New Testament. You shall. It's talked about. And along with that is the following. Third thought. Christians, that's a New Testament term. It's not Old Testament. Christ, Christians, followers of Christ. This is extremely important. Christians are never commanded to observe the Sabbath. Jesus never obliterated the Sabbath. Yet it's the only of the ten. All the other nine, you'll find them reiterated over and over and over. No other gods, no idols. God's called us away from idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Your words matter. Honor your parents. Obey your parents. We see all those things. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't lie. We see all of those things. You never find in the New Testament this reiteration, and we're never commanded to obey the Sabbath. Now, Romans 14, Paul in particular, says, hey, this person honors a certain day above the other. If that's their conscience, then let them do. But if this person doesn't, then you guys don't judge them. And if you don't honor a certain day, you're like, hey, one day's as good as another. Don't you look down at them as though they're weak and like they're less than you because they need to kind of get up to the times of the New Testament. I have these on there for a reason. Galatians chapter 4. Paul gets really, really ticked when Gentiles become Christians and these Judaizers want to put Gentiles under the Old Testament laws of the Jews. And Paul's like, stop it. You don't need to be putting those Sabbath laws on the Gentiles. They don't have to be doing that. And in Colossians chapter number 2, verse number 16, he says, don't let anybody judge you in all of these areas. And one of them is don't let them judge you in the area of Sabbath days and holy days. Not on your handout, but I want you to answer this in your head. Because we've talked about it. I want you to come up with a specific thing. This is important. With me? God let what was greater than the Sabbath be destroyed. What did we say this morning in today's text? Remember? People's opinions of the Sabbath. The Sabbath. What's greater than the Sabbath God let this be destroyed. It is the what? The temple. God, let this sink in. God let what is greater than the Sabbath, the temple, be destroyed in A.D. 70. Why? To show that a new order had come with the arrival of Jesus. That's a strong hint. Now, having said that, right? Here I'm coming to the conclusion. Though Christians, to us, are not under the law of the Old Testament. We don't keep the law trying to be saved. We're resting in the work of Christ. 
I got to go full circle, guys. I want you to listen. Though we are not under the law of performance, and this has not been reiterated, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. There is a principle in the Bible of physical rest, regular physical rest for God's people. Several of you know the scriptures well enough to know in the book of Genesis is where we're first taught about tithing. And we'll run there and say, there's a Bible principle about tithing that, that, that is there all along. We don't have to have a specific New Testament. Guys, read your Bible. In the book of Genesis, God set a standard. You are wired in need physically of rest. Here's my point. There is no glory. And by the way, I've heard this bragged about. I work every day. Seven days a week. I remember 25 years ago working on a job site here and there was a bricklayer. And he was bragging how he worked every day. On Sunday, he only worked like six or seven hours. I work every day, every day. And when I found out how old he was, I realized he literally looked about 20 years older than he really was. It was pitiful. And I'm like, I know why you look that way. He went in a little later on Sunday because he had a hangover from Saturday. But that's just the situation. There's no glory in working every day. God made you needing physical rest, and take a special day to focus on the Lord. Ah, and this is where Jeff's going to launch into a message about the Lord's Day. No, I don't have time. Well, he'll probably do it next time he preaches. Nope, won't take time. It's not part of our Matthew study. So, Jeff, what's the final conclusion? Can I give you this, and then we'll pray. The New Testament Lord's Day. I'm not talking about the day of the Lord that is a fearful day to come where he will set up his kingdom after judging the world. I'm talking about the Lord's day that is every week in the New Testament was on Sunday. Listen carefully. The Lord's day of Sunday for the Christian did not replace Sabbath. The Lord's day is not like the Lord's Day for the Christian is the equivalent of the Sabbath for the Jews. No, nope. it's not like, hey, we just do a different day of the week. We do the same thing. We bring all the same rules and same man-made rules, and we put ourselves under this burden. Can't do that. Can't do that. Stop it. It's not in the Bible. So we don't replace the Sabbath with the Lord's Day for Christians. But the Lord's Day was given for Christians as a time when on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, we gather and we meet. What do we do? According to the New Testament, we worship the Lord. We fellowship. We pray together. We study the apostles' doctrine and the, and the doctrines of the Lord and the, and the Old Testament. We study the Word of God and we give offerings. There's New Testament on the first day of the week. Collect this money. These are things that we do. This is to be protected. This is to be valued. This is to be honored. This is to be kept. We are to be faithful to this. The book of Hebrews, when it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, that's not telling the Hebrews to be faithful down to the synagogue on Saturday. It's telling Hebrew Christians to be faithful to assemble with God's people on the Lord's day. And that's been the pattern that began in the New Testament, has continued for 2,000 years. So in other words, instead of, look, we work, 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 and we're going to finish our week by resting physically, the Lord is saying, I want you to start your week resting, reminding that you are resting your whole life in the work of my son. Just start celebrating his resurrection. You're going to start the week that way. So Jeff, what if we just blow that off? Here's what I find. 
if you just blow by the principle of physical rest, ah, I'm young and tough, all right, you'll pay for it physically. I have to fight that. Friday is supposed to be my day off, and sometimes it's a real struggle. And that isn't a legalistic thing, but it's a need. You need it. You blow it off, you'll pay for it. Here's what I also find. Without fail, people who, here's key words, I find over and over, I'm going to read so I say it correctly. I've seen over and over where those who make intentional choices, intentional decisions that regularly, there's a key thought. I'm not talking about, oh, something happened or this. I'm not talking about that. Those who make intentional decisions that regularly keep them from gathering with God's people will pay for it spiritually. Without fail, it always happens. Just regularly out of the house of God. Yeah, but I have to, and they make, well, then get something else. Amen, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you for that, sir. <laughs> that wasn't, anyway, sorry. So I'll close with that thought. Those who make intentional decisions that regularly keep them out of the house of God, you're going to pay for it. It always does, spiritually. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to struggle. It'll show up in your family. Value it. Protect it. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? I've got to ask you just before I pray, it's 12.15, I need to ask you. Be honest. Don't check out yet. Just quickly. Is your soul, your soul at rest? Is your soul at rest? Do you, do you know? Like literally, I, I'm wondering if anyone in here this morning is telling themselves right now at that question, do you know that when you die and leave this world physically that you're going to go to heaven? Is your soul at rest? Somebody may be saying, no, it's not. I don't know where I'm going when I die. Others may be saying, yes, oh yes, I, my soul's at rest. I know I'm going to heaven. I have to ask this. What are you resting in? Like literally, why will you go to heaven? Why will Jesus let you into heaven? Answer that in your mind. Why? What are you resting in? I'm going to ask another question on the heels of that. Answer that. You say, oh yes, I, I, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Why? What are you trusting? What are you resting in? The question that follows that is, okay, that, that just entered your mind. What you just told yourself you're trusting. Anything else? You resting in anything else? You trusting anything else? Let me tell you something very serious. If you answered that question in your mind with something that you are doing, that is any movement or religious action of your body, if it is anything more than trusting and resting in Jesus' work on the cross to have paid for your sins, then you're not on your way to heaven. You are not on your way to heaven. The point of this passage and the point of the Sabbath all along has been to point us to the finished work of Christ that we can rest in. So Christians, I think our action step is pretty clear. We have a couple of them. Thank God. Like right now, 
Father, thank you for doing everything. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing everything that was needed for me to go to heaven and I get to rest in that and I don't do any of it except receive your offer of salvation. I don't move a muscle and I get to go to heaven. Lord, thank you for the way that you've decided to save mankind. If you've added anything beyond that, you need to confess your sins to the Lord right now. Just talk with him right now. God, I am a sinner. I'm confessing my sin. And Lord, today... Never thought I would do this on a sermon about the Sabbath, but Lord, I'm going to rest. I receive your salvation. I'm going to rest in Jesus. He said, come and rest in Him. Tell Christ, tell the Father, save me today. And I rest, I receive it. I trust that you are not lying, that you're trustworthy. I'm just going to rest in Jesus, having paid for my sin. I'll take Him as my Lord and Savior. But Christians, we need to thank the Lord. And we need to get rest physically on a regular basis. And we need to honor the time that the Lord has called in the New Testament for us to be faithful, to meet with God's people. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Unusual passage. Lord, not quite as heavy as last week's. Lord, the difficulty, and you know this, is that we'll read this passage and think it's not a lot for us. Lord, forgive us of presumptuousness if that's how we looked at this passage. Father, I pray that you would teach every Christian to be grateful and thankful and in a fresh way to meet every week saying thank you, Lord Jesus, for making my salvation and my eternal rest. I will not be in torments because of what you did on the cross. Thank you for doing all the work and giving it away as a free gift. And then, Lord... Help us to honor and value our time together. Let us be found faithful. And then, Father, if anyone struggling with their salvation, their soul is at unrest, would you give them faith, God? You're going to have to give them faith. They can't work it up. Would you give them faith to trust Jesus in him only? We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Go have a great week.